0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Ah, gladdies and potties they're playing our song. And speaking of song, a little later, we're going to hear the history of the banjo, an instrument, would you believe, designed for rebellion by enslaved Africans in the Americas. And as an added treat, we'll hear some of the tunes they played way back in the 18th century. But first, a health warning. We are heading into the weird and wonderful world of phobias. This uh, next chat comes with, a well, a trigger warning for those of nervous disposition. We're about to discuss phobias, manias and fear. Fear of spiders, snakes, creepy crawlies, fear of closed spaces, open spaces, heights, holes, clowns, feathers, frogs and even buttons. My next guest has compiled an A to Z of phobias that have affected us over the ages from... Uh, Ablutophobia, which is a horror of washing, to zoophobia, a terror of animals. But the process, she's uncovered a number of famous sufferers and uh, traced the history of the physicians and shrinks who named our fixations. Kate Summerscale was on the programme a few years ago. We had a butte chat about her book, The Wicked Boy The Mystery of a Victorian Child Murderer. And a previous book of hers, The Suspicions of Mr Witcher was made into a, a successful telling series. Since then, she's gone on to win a number of awards and three cheers, been appointed as a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. But now she joins us read The Book of Phobias and Manias, A History of the World in 99 Obsessions. Kate, welcome back. What's the link between uh, your previous books on matters criminal and phobias?
2: Well, I think I always like to write about people who have fixations and obsessions, whether they're obsessions with ghosts or murder or extramarital affairs. Um, And so I uncover historical stories, forgotten historical stories, where people behave in ways that sort of border on madness So it's kind of a natural fit in a way to dig into these ordinary fixations, but that also throw up a little like pockets of madness in us, and to delve into their history and to try to find out the first cases that were named and and recorded, and and to explore these sort of ordinary madnesses.
1: I like your uh, definition. Separating phobias from manias, you say phobias are a compulsion to avoid something, while manias are a compulsion to do something. In a way, two sides of the same coin.
2: They're both fixations, really. Either be become fixated with something that you feel repelled by or scared by or want to avoid, or there's an activity or a behaviour that feels completely compelling and unavoidable. Um, But they are very closely related in a way.
1: And you make the point that phobias are little pockets of madness that pretty much all of us carry around.
2: Yeah. I sort of thought of myself when I began the research as not being particularly phobic, not Very sensitive to disgust, uh, though I I, I did identify a couple of anxieties I have that sort of border on phobia, like uh, about flying, for example, um, and public speaking.
1: Uh, That's a very, very common one, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Yeah and it's um they're both perfectly irrational flying is safe <laughs> public speaking is does not pose a sort of mortal danger to us and yet for for some of us whose mouth goes dry your heart's pounding, you kind of feel like you're going to just zone out and go blank, you have an almost physiological reaction that really makes no sense. So it's fascinating that we we do have these irrational responses to certain situations. Well,
1: while we're confessing, my problem is with snakes and it's not entirely irrational in that the damn things keep killing my pet dogs and I've narrowly escaped to a couple of most unpleasant situations with them. So they're not always irrational. Sometimes they're based on a sensible assessment.
2: Yeah, nearly all of them, if you really dig down, are based on, a sort of rooted in a rational fear. So certainly snakes, it seems that we have an almost uh, sort of hardwired predisposition to recoil from a snake that probably protected us in our our prehistory and helped us survive as a species.
1: Tell me about Benjamin Rush, an American physician who happened to be one of the founding fathers of the US.
2: Yeah, he was the first in 1786 to identify phobias and manias as psychological conditions and he listed a load of phobias and manias A slightly tongue-in-cheek he talked about doctor phobia and he talked about some people some men having a home phobia which compelled them to stop off at the tavern (laughs) on the way back from
1: work well he's a a very likable fellow but i learned from him well i learned from you That mania comes from the Greek word for madness, while phobia comes from phobos, the Greek god of panic. God, the Greeks had a comprehensive uh, arrangement theologically—a god of panic.
2: Yes, um, so yeah, phobos uh, is the is the origin of the word phobia. Yeah, so he represented fear and panic, and um, and these phobia and mania words. You can, I mean, there's an infinite number of phobias. You can take any word and add phobia to it, and um, and you've got a, you know, you've got you've named your condition.
1: Well, I've got Trump phobia.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, and some people have Trump mania, of course, <laughs> unfortunately.
1: <laughs> yeah. What did uh, Rush include in his original list?
2: Well, among the manias, he included liberty mania, which is interesting coming from a founding father of the United States. He saw some people as being too obsessed with freedom and, um, and driven by that to the exclusion of all else. Among the phobias, he had doctors, rats, still a pretty common and one might say up to a point rational phobia, and ghosts, again, who wouldn't be scared of ghosts? They're there to be scared of. But the key thing is most phobias are but sort of rational, as you described, as snakes. But it's where the fear sort of takes you over and makes you behave in irrational ways. It sort of dominates your behavior or interferes with your life so that it becomes a diagnosable phobia.
1: Well, some phobias are in a sense fashionable. There's a lot of phobias around dirt, for example, but as you point out, sensibly based, and they sort of occur when germ theory is evolving.
2: Yes, it became um, a condition, it's called mysophobia, M-Y-S, and it, it became quite widespread in the United States in the 1880s, which was when Pasteur's theory about how disease was transmitted was being widely reported, and um, especially young women in America were going to their physicians, they developed a horror of touching things, even newspapers or books, and compulsively washed their hands and their clothes. And it's recognisable in forms of obsessive compulsive disorder that um, that is still, you know, quite prevalent.
1: How extreme does a fear Of an object or a situation have to be before it is officially classified as a phobia?
2: Well, according to the sort of psychiatric manuals, it um, needs to have lasted for six months or more, the fear, to be extreme and irrational, both quite subjective terms, um, but also to interfere with normal life. So many of us have some irrational anxieties that we carry around with us and we deal with them simply by avoiding the thing we fear. But where it gets in the way of normal functioning, that, that's when it becomes a sort of psychiatric condition, an anxiety disorder that needs treating.
1: Well, the good old DSM-5 gives us uh, a number of categories, doesn't it? Five types, animal phobias, natural environmental phobias, like fear of heights or fear of water, injury phobias, and situational phobias, such as, uh, well, entrapment in closed spaces.
2: And there's also another category alongside that, which are the social phobias, so which are, um, you know, anxieties about being around other people, in essence, in various forms.
1: Well, that that's very appropriate to the COVID era, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I was very curious because I've researched and wrote this book during the pandemic. And I was curious as to, in a way, the pandemic enhanced all our phobias and manias, compulsive behaviours and anxieties about, um, you know, dirt, touching other people, public spaces, and it does, I mean, the New York Times described the young as a sort of generation agoraphobia in the wake of the pandemic. Because a lot of children knew little else than being in their own homes and um, being out and about and, and with others it was was naturally quite terrifying.
1: Talking to uh, Kate Summerscale, writer and journalist, author of The Book of Phobias and Manias, A History of the World in 99 obsessions. I take it that 99 is just a random number.
2: Yeah, it seemed a, a nice big number to indicate that there's, there's sort of a lot in here of sort of variety of phobias and manias. But it could have been any number. Um, but that, it seemed a natural sort of range so that it didn't end up sort of repeating the same theories and interpretations or, or patterns. I wanted enough to be able to look at all the different ways of understanding phobias as well as the different kinds of phobias that we can have.
1: Reliable stats seem elusive in that uh, you point out that most people don't report phobias.
2: Yeah. But there have been some recent big studies which kind of combine surveys from all over the world that reached fairly similar conclusions, which is that one in 10 women has a diagnosable phobia. Many more of us, of course, have things that we call phobias and one in 20 men. There's quite a dramatic discrepancy between those, which may, of course, be to do with how ready women are to report their fears. It's, it's more acceptable for a woman to identify as, as anxious and scared, I think, even now. Um, but it may also have some roots in, in our sort of evolution. Now, agoraphobia,
1: them, the fear of open spaces, which we've already mentioned in dispatches, that was recognised as a disorder... In 1871 by Carl Otto Westphal tell me about him.
2: He was a physician in Berlin and he noticed that he was get, he had several patients or men in fact who reported a sort of panic at being outside in the in the city especially crossing wide open spaces but also getting into buses and theaters and so on so it was a weird disorder that was both a fear of emptiness and of crowds and seemed a peculiarly urban phenomenon to him.
1: Now, a lot of uh, mental disorders seem to have emerged around the same time as uh, industrialisation. Tell me about Arithmomania.
2: Yeah, this was um, Nikolai Tesla was was one of the sufferers from, from this, the engineer. And um, it's a sort of compulsion about numbers, obsessive behavior centered around numbers. So it could be an obsession with an individual number so that, in his case, everything had to be divisible by three. He needed 18 napkins, nine <laughs> towels, <laughs> or you, you're not allowed to stop walking until you reach a multiple of a certain
1: number. <laughs> I learned um, from and then, you. I thought I knew a lot about Tesla, but I was ignorant of the fact that he'd walk three times around a building before entering.
2: yeah, that's right. So it's a kind of heightened superstition, but it's if it's sufficiently obsessive, it can dominate people's lives and um and there's still that. and there is a one historian I came across suggested that. We had internal in the industrial age. We sort of internalized the rhythms of machinery, and so this idea of counting things off rhythmically um, and it became a a sort of form of of anxiety disorder because of the society, the world in which we lived, being dominated by machinery.
1: There's a very sad story you tell us uh, from the English psychiatrist Daniel Hack Tuke about a woman, a female patient who came to preface every act of her life by counting. She needed to count to a certain number before turning over in bed.
2: Yeah, and I came across, uh, you know, plenty of modern cases where people develop similar compulsive, um, sort of highly superstitious behaviours um and 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 feel it's a way of feeling safe, I suppose, but in a state of high anxiety or uncertainty, that numbers, counting, rituals are something to contain uh, contain one that you can that you can hold on to.
1: You also found a link with the gentleman who gave us uh, the Tourette syndrome. He observed that the mania, like other forms of uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, was a common feature. Of the Tick syndrome, he identified what in eighteen eighty-five?
2: So all these developments in psychiatry are all kind of simultaneous. It's sort of fascinating, people going off in different directions but overlapping, including Freud and who was also operating at that time, and people who were very interested in how our psychology had its its roots in evolutionary concerns.
1: We'll come back to the sainted Sigmund a little later but what are some of the the most unusual phobias you came across in the course of your research and this is a Dorothy Dixer because I want you to tell me about buttons.
2: (laughs) Yes I would have chosen buttons. I love uh, that seems like the quintessential mysterious And yet, strangely common phobia. It's surprising how often when I speak to people about phobias and mention buttons, they know somebody with with a phobia of buttons. Um, And Steve Jobs had it, apparently, which was why he always wore those turtleneck sweaters and didn't like to wear suits or shirts or clothes with buttons. And perhaps it even influenced the design of some of his products, which are sort of notably streamlined, you know, without protuberances. The case studies I read it suggested all kinds of different possible origins. But one thing that struck me was the way that buttons, people who hate buttons are scared so scared of buttons they particularly hate a button that dangles or becomes detached (laughs) and I started to sort of understand from that where that what how unpleasant that idea was and it's almost like a bit of your self falling off or threatening to fall off and I think a lot of children are probably warned off buttons because they might choke on them when, you know, in early childhood. So that might be another source of the anxiety, the feeling that they're this sort of dangerous object.
1: Now, back to Freud as promised. Now, he had a problem with trains, and although this is a family program, I'd like you to tease that out.
2: (laughs) Well, his theory which uh, about why he had a phobia of trains and became highly anxious at the idea of train travel was that he when he was 2 years old had been on a train overnight train journey with his mother and he speculated that he must have seen her naked as she changed for bed and that he had desired her had been you know excited by the sight of her and he had Projected that desire onto the train as a way of disowning it, and also his anxiety that he would be punished for the desire. So instead of having those feelings, he put them all into the train itself. And by avoiding the train, he could avoid the danger of being punished for his illicit illicit wishes. So that, and that a, was the sort of foundation of, well, a lot of, of Freudian theory about projection and displacement and certainly his theory about how phobias
1: operated. I've recently developed a, a phobia about Salvador Dali. It's emerged that he was a, a total fascist, a bigot of the first order, but he suffered from a severe phobia, that of little insects.
2: Yeah, it was scared of most insects, from grasshoppers to mites. sort of very hor- horribly vivid story about him in a Parisian hotel room um, attacking his back with a razor blade till it bled because he became convinced that a little pimple on his back was harbouring a horde of, of tiny insects. Um, and yes, it's a particularly horrible phobia, the idea that insects might have got... a underneath one's skin, and that itching is, is caused by that, um, and that that sort of delusion took hold of him on that occasion and others.
1: Let's now try to work towards a happy ending, Kate. Can phobias be cured, and if so, how?
2: Yes, they are among the most treatable of anxiety disorders. Um, there are several stories in the book about people undergoing different kinds of therapy, from hypnotherapy, cognitive behavioural therapy, virtual reality therapies now too. Um, And they're highly treatable. But oddly enough, um, only one in eight people is thought to seek help for their phobias. Uh, Instead, they you know, live with them on the whole. But, yeah, specific phobias are relatively easy to treat compared to most forms of anxiety disorder.
1: My secretary for many years has suffered from arachnophobia and has tried treatment which doesn't seem to have been wildly successful. Do you know of cases where it's worked?
2: There's a story in the book of a a British writer called Jenny Diskey who went and did an afternoon's treatment at London Zoo which entails hypnotherapy, also, some just plain old information about spiders and exposure therapy, which means going into the insect zone and <laughs> letting a tarantula run across your hand or, or whatever. And um, and that was it. she had a very severe spider phobia, and it cured her. But she writes about this, and at the end, she says she feels a bit wistful. She says, "I wonder what I've lost by losing that." part of myself that was scared of spiders and it sort of hints at the way that sometimes phobias become part of our identities part of our personalities and there might be a kind of resistance to overcoming them or seeking treatment for them for that reason
1: i'm intrigued that you mentioned amongst the desensitization treatments virtual reality headsets
2: yeah apparently so there's a a, a study at Oxford University as um, an experiment in which it was proved extremely effective um, a virtual reality treatment at curing acrophobia, which is the fear of heights. Um, and people will put on the headsets and would virtually play and do tasks on different floors of a very high building. And um, and by doing this repeatedly, they were cured uh, or close to cured of their fear of heights.
1: You don't trivialise phobias, do you? You take them very seriously because uh, if you're in the grip of them, it can be torture.
2: Yeah. I mean, at their worst, um, they... Can be absolutely tormenting conditions, and uh, so although some of the even some of them seem sort of almost comical at first glance. But for the sufferer, they can be, you know, absolutely terrible.
1: I've always uh, preferred to wear skivvies than shirts, and I now realise it's because of my button phobia, and I thank you for the diagnosis. Uh, (laughs) I've been talking to Kate Summerscale, British author extraordinaire, and journo, her latest book is The Book of Phobias and Manias. A History of the World in 99 Obsessions, out now from the Welcome Collection. Good on you, Kate. Thanks, Philip. Thanks very much. And now, beloved listeners, you probably think the banjo is just a rather banal instrument. Not so. It has a truly fascinating history. Coming up on LNL. described as the strum-strump, otherwise the banjo. It arrived in Australia already loaded with the, well, pejorative stereotypes. Even today it's seen as a bit of a hillbilly instrument synonymous with the conservative white country music culture. But like so many other things in history, the banjo was not invented by white people but appropriated by them. In fact, it was designed by enslaved people of African descent who had arrived in the Americas and were carving out a new culture for themselves. And it wasn't just a means of making marvellous music. It could be a symbol of rebellion and, as you will discover, a deeply significant spiritual object. Christina R. Gaddy has gone to great lengths to unearth the true history of the banjo, and her result is a new book, Well of Souls, Uncovering the Banjo's Hidden History. Christina, welcome to our little wireless program.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here.
1: I'd like you to tell me how you did a segue from playing classical violin to becoming attached to the banjo. Um...
0: The easiest answer to that is that my mom is from Sweden, and so I started playing Swedish folk music with her. I enjoyed playing in school orchestras, uh, but I found I wanted to kind of play in more social situations with people, and from there started playing kind of old, American old time traditional music, some bluegrass, and started learning about the history of the banjo, and was just completely fascinated with how Something that we perceive, as you mentioned, as being so uh, white and so American actually had you know, this black history and lots of influence um, from Africa.
1: Now, your partner, Pete Ross, also played a part.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, So he is a banjo maker. And he was really the first person uh, to delve into some of the very deepest, earliest history with me, because I knew these kind of broad strokes. But I wasn't, you know, I think, like many people familiar with this earliest history. And he really encouraged, you know, this kind of banjo obsession that he has to trickle over um, into my life and really start thinking about the banjo in different and interesting ways.
1: One of the extraordinary things in your story is the fact that there are less than 15 known images of the banjo that exist before 1820. I find that astonishing. Take us back to the first known record from 16 1687 and introduces to Hans Sloan.
0: Yes so the first known image of the banjo as we have it right now is 1687 with Hans Sloan and Hans Sloan was a British doctor and he was sent to Jamaica with the new governor of Jamaica who's going to take over in 1687. And Hans Sloan was a little bit unusual for his time because he really wanted to travel and wanted to learn about plant life there, learn about remedies that both uh, Native Americans who would have been on Jamaica and enslaved Africans were using to basically build his own medical knowledge through those uh, various plant remedies. But he also had this super interesting, what I think of as a collector's instinct or a collector's gene, which I still see with some of my banjo collecting friends today, which was that when Hans went, he didn't just want to learn about these things, but he wanted to collect them. So he collected plants and he collected Objects and um, one of two of the things that he collected were two early banjos that were called strum strums, or he recorded the name as strum strums. Uh, But they're remarkably similar both to banjo images that appear about a hundred years later than that and banjos that are collected. In the Caribbean 150 years after that first 1687 account.
1: So the good Dr. Sloan also asked a, a black musician, Mr. Baptiste, to transcribe the music he heard at a festival.
0: Yes, and that is also so exciting just because there, were, there are very few accounts of uh, African-American music from, you know, basically before slavery begins to end in, in various colonies, um, you know, beginning uh, in the 1830s. But he was interested in music and went to this festival and asked Mr. Baptiste, who was a Black man, to transcribe uh, the songs that he heard, which took an amazing amount of skill because uh, they are very rhythmically interesting and different from Western music, and yet he's putting it on, you know, Western notation so that anybody who bought Sloane's book when it he finally published it in 1707 could, you know, sit at a harpsichord and play this music.
1: My guest Christina Gaddy, writer and historian, and a book, dedicated incidentally to Mr. Baptiste, we've mentioned. The book is Well of Souls Uncovering the Banjo's Hidden History, published by W.W. W. Norton. Please describe in detail what a gourd banjo looks like and how it was made.
0: So gourd banjos look really different from what we think of as modern banjos. I think most people think modern banjos, okay, they have this round body um, that does have kind of a skin or a plastic head on top, uh, but there's a lot of metal to it. Uh, They're really heavy and kind of big instruments. And gourd banjos have a body that is, instead of being made of, you know, a wooden circular, uh, something that almost looks like a drum. It's this rounded gourd. It still has a flat neck like a banjo does today or like a guitar does, but it wouldn't have had frets on it. So the little markers that tell you where to put your fingers. And it just has a much earthier tone because it doesn't have that metal. It still has a skin that sits where a hole has been cut away in the gourd. So it still has that skin soundboard like banjos do today. But, you know, the kind of gourd body and the lack of all of that metal gives it a much, I think of as a richer, uh, kind of lower, earthier tone. And these were made by enslaved people of African descent. um, And one of the things that I think is important to think about is that materials, you know, are at a premium, because enslaved people didn't have money to purchase things, so we're thinking of materials that they could have easily gathered themselves. But time was also a premium, Uh, the time to make it on their own when they weren't laboring. And so we get kind of instruments that are perhaps we'd describe as simple but very well-crafted.
1: You make the point that it was different to any known instruments that existed in Africa at the time, but seems to have been a sort of hybrid.
0: Yes, exactly. So the banjo, as we see it with this gourd body, a flat fingerboard and tuning pegs, just like on a guitar or a violin uh, or a banjo today, these are all unique to the banjo. And we see in Africa instruments across the continent that have some of these characteristics. So we'll see West African instruments that have gourd bodies, but they don't have flat fingerboards and they don't have tuning pegs. And then in East Africa, we have instruments that have flat fingerboards and tuning pegs, but they have wooden bodies. And so it really seems, you know, to me to be this instrument that is using various traditions to come together. And I always think of it as like creolized language or creolized food, where you're taking some things that you know from your culture, but then it's being influenced by other cultures as well.
1: We have, as I pointed out earlier, the good doctor to thank for strum strums. But uh, where does the word banjo itself come from?
0: The word banjo has been so hard to trace, and one of the things is that there are instruments in Africa that have names that are kind of similar to banjo, but none of them really appear like a banjo appears. So saying that, you know, that came from an African instrument seems kind of hard to substantiate. But one of the most exciting things that kind of spurred all of my research was learning that The word banjo, before it was standardized, had like lots of different spellings, um, and one of them that's very similar is banya, so it still has that kind of J sound, but an A at the end, and the banya was also a dance in Suriname, which used to be a Dutch colony, and so, you know, there is a tradition in... West African countries that instruments will be named after the dance or ritual that they were a part of. And so it's possible that the word banjo originates with this banya and the banya dance that um, is still a living tradition today in Suriname. It's-
1: it's interesting that this uh, instrument seems to, in a sense, uh, just come alive all over the place, from Suriname that you mentioned to South Carolina to New York. Some sort of uh, combustion takes place.
0: Yeah. And that, that geographic spread is something I think that's always been very interesting to, to people. And it's definitely interesting to me. Uh, the two instruments from Suriname look a little bit different than Hans Sloan's image from Jamaica, an instrument from Haiti that has been found, um, and, and an image from South Carolina. So they don't, they have a lot of similarities, but little bit, little differences here and there. But I think one of the The tangible geographic uh, spreads that we see is because of enslavement and the movement of people, especially from the Caribbean to, for example, Louisiana, South Carolina, New York, even Philadelphia. Um, And so throughout various points during the time period that I write about, kind of from 1687 to 1865, you have... You know, descriptions of people traveling um, from one place to another. You have accounts of, you know, for example, a banjo player in Philadelphia who had come from Haiti. Um, And so you got lots of people moving all the time. And I, you know, I think that's our best guess right Mm -hmm. now as to how this instrument uh, traveled, you know, from the Caribbean where the earliest examples are to, yeah, as far north as, as New York.
1: People moving by force or by choice. And if we look at the the latter, the earliest records of banjos we have are from advertisements for people who'd managed to uh, liberate yes. themselves.
0: Yes, and that is an amazing, you know, example kind of of, of the the many types of rebellion that I think I talk about in the book and you know one is as daring and dangerous as escaping and knowing that if you're caught uh, you could be killed because of that Um, but of course we get these records of it saying you know for example uh, Toby ran away from Maryland and he took a banjo with him hope maybe he thought he could you know make money playing the banjo Obviously, I think the banjo is probably an important instrument, um, so, you know, takes it with him because of that. Uh, But you also get people playing the banjo even when it's not allowed and it it has been banned in these ways that it becomes not only a tool for people to gather together culturally, but also to express resistance against the oppressive forces of enslavement
1: that were the reality. So, music... And dancing together a form of rebellion?
0: Absolutely. Um, I think that on the one hand you have these very specific edicts throughout colonial history that say dancing is banned, gathering is banned, music is banned, drums are banned if it's enslaved people doing it because it gave people an opportunity to gather and communicate with each other. And perhaps that communication could be used for rebellion, which uh, it was, in fact, you know, we have um, accounts of the beginning of the Haitian revolution as having music um, and kind of celebration attached to the beginnings of those uprisings. Uh, But even just, you know, thinking about kind of the role that music can play in people's lives because of its physical impacts on the body, when we get together and sing, you know, in church, or we get together and dance and listen to music, we, our bodies do something amazing and they can kind of get in sync with each other. And so it also, you know, music and dance functioned as a way to build community uh, and and believe in, you know, higher powers, believe in, in each other. Um, and I think that that is kind of a subtle act of rebellion when living with that type of oppression.
1: I think we've established that the banjo is a subversive instrument, but it's also largely seen as secular, whereas you emphasize the spiritual role it played. And astonishingly, this was embedded in the very design of the instrument.
0: Yeah, this was where it was so helpful to have um, Pete as my sounding board for ideas when I would come across research or come across new images or was, you know, just doing reading surrounding kind of uh, banjo history. And, and I was looking at um, the tradition of Vodou in Haiti and, you know, just learning more about that because one of the extant instruments, one of this. St- still existing instruments today um, is from Haiti. It was collected in 1840. And Pete had examined this instrument when it first uh, turned up in 2003. And one of the things he noticed was that the way in which it was constructed actually made it harder to play uh, just because of how the neck intersects with the gourd and it kind of bisects it directly. And it's a little technical, but This makes it harder to play, and he could never figure out the reason for it. He knew that the likely men who made banjos could have made them in a more playable way. In fact, more similar to some of the African instruments that the banjo is different from. And... You know, he, was, he had always kind of had that in his mind, but didn't have a good explanation for it. And I started talking about the kind of symbolism that is very central to Vodou, but also to other African diasporic religions, um, in, including symbols that you see in kind of African-American Christianity um, in Winti and Suriname. And that's basically this intersection of um, a spiritual and earthly plane that's symbolized by a circle being bisected by a line, that goes straight up and down. And this, in fact, is that, that structure is how, for example, a rattle in Vodou is constructed, that you have a stick that bisects a little calabash that you can then shake, uh, not unlike a maraca. And that is also how the banjo is constructed. And, you know, Pete was like, I think this is the reason Mm. i can't see any other reason um but what was more than that was that once i started thinking that way i saw how many times the banjo was associated with religious rituals including uh death ceremonies uh performances that would have been done at grave sites, uh, various songs and dances that were meant to connect to ancestors and spirits, and that the banjo was really central to those dances and that music.
1: Hence the, uh, the notion of the, uh, the well of souls from whence your title comes.
0: Exactly. So I thought that the, you know, the body of the instrument is like vessels or drums in Vodou, which is where spirits can reside, and that in fact, you know, when the banjo is being played, that it serves as this vessel um, for spirits and souls to come, be, be in and be in concert with the people who are uh, dancing in these religious ceremonies.
1: We've done uh, many programs on the looting of African culture. And in that proud tradition, banjos were often taken to Europe as cultural curiosities. Do any of them survive?
0: That is also something I think is amazing, that only four gourd banjos from this early tradition survive. They're all in European museums, even though... All of them came from the Americas. And those four were taken as yet cultural curiosities, including the ones that Hans Sloan took. Of course, Hans Sloan took those, uh, and they became part of the British Museum, but they are no longer there. They have not been found. They may be somewhere, uh, but they're not at the British Museum. Um, So even though this instrument was ubiquitous and people could use it in an advertisement or in a play or in written language and just say banjo and people knew what that meant, even though it was so common, there are only four. And I begin in my book talking about that there are three because during the course of not even writing it, during the course of the editing period at the very end, we got an email from a curator in France, who said, "I found this in a collection. It looks like a banjo. What do you think?" And it is it is most definitely a banjo, and it's mm-hmm. amazing. So there might be more out there in collections, and mm-hmm. folks just don't know you know what to look for. Um, but yeah, there's only four.
1: of course, every everyone knows the creator of some of the, the most famous violins, but uh, the sad thing is that we will never know who made or played the banjos you're describing.
0: That's correct. Um, Even though we have those four and we have very good records for three of them about the the white men who collected them, none of them wrote down who they obtained these instruments from and therefore, you know, who would have made them or who the player was. (laughs)
1: Any discussion about returning the banjos from whence they came?
0: Um, Not that I'm aware of. Uh, I think they, you know, these museums have, um, as they always do, they have their arguments for for keeping them. Um, None of them are in playable condition. They could not be. They just couldn't be made playable because they're too fragile. Again, if we only have four, we don't want to somehow harm any of them. Um, But the other question could be, you know, how could we make replicas of them and perhaps share those um, with these communities so that we can, you know, hear what it sounds like and and experience them within the cultures that they are. Um, And it is something I would love to talk more with those museums about, about how how that kind of ethical return or shared stewardship could work with these instruments.
1: The voice of uh, Christina Gaddy, telling us the history of the banjo, which is recorded in her book, Well of Souls. Now, it's very clear from the early records that the banjo was looked at, down upon by whites who considered it crude and uncouth. So how did it come to pass from black hands to white hands?
0: We see some examples of kind of interest of white folks in banjos um, early, you know, or kind of late in in the eighteen in the seventeen hundreds, early in the eighteen hundreds. But it's really with the explosion of blackface minstrelsy in the eighteen forties that the banjo starts being played by more and more white hands. And so we have these white men who are affecting Blackness by painting their faces Black, but also speaking in dialects and wearing clothing that they perceive as Black, and then singing songs and playing music as entertainment for white audiences.
1: There's an, an Australian story here which you may not be aware of and that is after after slavery uh, was banned in the, in the United States, those black and white minstrel shows, the blackface shows, were challenged by freed slaves who actually appeared on stage without the need for blackened faces and they were run out of city after city and some actually came to australia and played the minefields up and down the uh, up and down our coast so i guess that's when the banjo arrived in australia
0: Yes, and there were—I mean, there were also white black-faced minstrel troops who came to Australia too, because um, it really was a global phenomenon. You had them traveling to to Australia, to Japan, to England, uh, to Ireland, um, and and people being really interested in this musical performance and finding it compelling in a very strange way. Um, but this was and and for some black musicians as well, of playing the kind of minstrel repertoire or playing in that setup was an opportunity for them to play music professionally, and so they were willing to do that even though it had this kind of nasty beginning that a lot of us don't like to think about or talk about today.
1: So there are some efforts at a revival of the banjo with black musicians.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I think that once, you know, kind of in the late 1900s, the history of the banjo was becoming more and more well-known and what you had was at first a lot of people kind of using the beginnings of the internet to communicate with each other about this history and wanting to to learn more about it. You also had white scholars who were interested in in this Black African-American history. Um, And so they got together in a kind of famed event that's called the Black Banjo Gathering. And that was where the group, the Carolina Chocolate Drops, met and formed. And I think, you know, ever since then, and the notoriety that the Carolina Chocolate Drops got, in addition to kind of ongoing research and scholarship has really made a super fertile ground uh, for some of the awesome younger musicians who are coming up. Um, Jake Blunt is uh, a friend and From here in Maryland, uh, where I live, and, you know, just doing really interesting things of looking at the history of the banjo and how that can be incorporated into the contemporary music that they're playing.
1: My guest, Christina Gaddy, writer and historian, and a book dedicated, incidentally, to Mr. Baptiste we've mentioned. The book is Well of Souls. Uncovering the Banjo's Hidden History, published by W. W. Norton. And let's end with some more early African diasporic music, thanks to the Musical Passage website. This is uh, Laurent Dubois, Mary-Kate Lingold, and David Garner's interpretation of music transcribed in Sloan's 1707 book, Voyage to the Islands. Thank